everybody, this is Joe Lynn Turner, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Keep it rock and keep it locked. Focus Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal, as this week we bring you episode four of our massive Kerrang! project for 2017. So this week we have the one and only Howard Johnson. Yep, Richie got a hold of Howard, got him on the show, talking all about his Kerrang! days. Amazing guy, starting off in the music journalism business back when he was a teenager, and still doing it. And by still doing it, I mean that now... He is part of the brand new Rock Candy magazine. Of course, that was actually uh, had a little spoiler alert from one of our prior Kerrang! guests talking about that magazine coming out a little bit before it actually uh, hit the news. So a scoop here on Focus on Metal. But yep, Howard is involved with Rock Candy magazine. Issue number one is out. And if you're interested, of course, Howard will talk a little bit about it in the interview. But you can go to rockcandymag.com. Don't go to rockcandymagazine.com. You don't want that one. I don't think you're uh, style-conscious metalheads. But if you want to go to uh, see about all the great stories that uh, Howard and a bunch of other ex-Karang guys are doing, go to rockcandymag.com. So as I said, Richie did a great interview with Howard. He uh, has a lot of great stories, a lot of stuff to say. So this one is definitely going to be a long one. For those stations that only carry us for the hour format, I apologize. But, uh, this will not fit in on our normal time slot. So it will be edited down. Everybody else on the other stations, as well as iTunes, and of course from FocusOnMetal.net, you get to hear the whole thing. So with that, why don't we get right into Richie's talk with Howard Johnson. So do you want to get into it, Howard? Yeah, that's fine, no problem. Yeah, so first question I ask everyone is, um, how did how did you get to work for Kerrang? Did you come from Sounds as well as some of the rest of them? Um, no, my, my, my history with how I got started with Kerrang! is really based back to um, being at school in Manchester uh, in the late 70s. And uh, like probably all of us, I was a little heavy metal fan, um, didn't have any connections with the business, uh, didn't have any connections with journalism, but had a real passion for the music and um, started my own fanzine while I was at school called, originally called Flying V and eventually became Phoenix for reasons that I can't even remember now. <laughs> but um, it was it was just purely done out of passion. Um I did it with some school friends. We um, reviewed albums, reviewed gigs, uh, managed to blag our way in for a couple of interviews, very early doors with some of the local bands, and um, and used to just stand outside the Apollo in Manchester trying to flog it, which is kind of funny now when you look back on it. I was probably 14, maybe 15 at the time. Um, but... Um, was obviously standing outside the gigs in the wind and the rain, selling them to punters going in. At the time, it was kind of... I guess the bands would have been yeah, UFOs, Motorhead, ACDC, that kind of group. And also traipsing around the local record shops like the HMV and Virgin and the one or two indie shops in Manchester at the time. Um, and just asking them if they would stock it on a sale or return basis. I think it was the princely sum of about 50p at the time. <laughs> and... Um, and I got a little bit of success from uh, from the record shops. They took them, and um, I guess we probably started now. I can't remember how many we sold. Probably maybe five hundred or something like that. And um, 
Uh, because I was a pushy little git, I sent some stuff to uh, Sounds. I just sent a copy of the magazine, if I remember rightly, to a guy called Alan Lewis, who was the editor at the time. This is before the days of Kerrang! when Sounds was really the only newspaper in England that was covering rock music at all. I mean, you had the enemy and you had Melody Maker, but they were always really sniffy about rock. Um, so I sent a copy off to Alan Lewis, who, as I say, was the editor of Sounds, suggesting um, that I should be writing for them uh, in my kind of youthful arrogance <laughs> and suggested that um, maybe a, an article about some of the emerging European heavy metal bands should be uh, a piece in Sounds because I picked up on Accept and Trust and some of those groups when I'd been away um, on holiday, um, I think the previous summer. So I thought there was a, a chance to tell people about these groups that really weren't known in the UK at the time. And um, if I remember rightly, I don't think I got any response at all from Alan, but um, not being one to take no for an answer, I remember thinking I'd better try and phone him up because they had a... Um, they had an office number in the in sounds. So I can remember at the time, this is way back, obviously, when it used to cost a fortune to phone anywhere in the morning. I don't know if you remember that, when it used to cost a, yeah. an arm and a leg anywhere in the morning, and it was more expensive. It was cheaper in the afternoon. So I remember asking my mum if I could use the phone in the afternoon to phone London. Of course, at that time, she went, yeah, go on then. Um, and I think I got a secretary or something like that um, who said that they would pass the message on and then, of course, nobody called me back and I tried again. I think probably on the third attempt, they were probably sick of the sound of me and um, eventually I got through to Alan and I kind of explained who I was and said, told him about the fanzine and said that I had this idea for an article and to, much to my surprise, he said, um, okay, then um, write me a piece and I think he said, you know, do me like a thousand words or something like that, which um, which was amazing. And of course, I put the phone down pretty gobsmacked at the fact that he'd said yes so i um i put the article together obviously back in the day on the old typewriters and making loads of mistakes and getting through uh, three pots of um tipex and eventually sent the article off and um again didn't hear anything for quite a while and i can't remember actually whether i chased it up i can only assume that i did but eventually i used to buy sounds religiously every thursday when it came out and one day I went and bought it, and lo and behold, there was the um, there was the article in there, which was obviously amazing for um, for me at that time. Howard, can you remember who the article was on? Yeah, I say it was on the it had, the piece was all about European heavy metal acts, so it was kind of like a roundup, mm -hmm. talking about the uh, trust and accept and oh, I don't know, there were some bands from Holland that names escape me now, but. Um, I just remember being thrilled that it had been printed and then even more thrilled when I realised that I'll get paid for it. And I got something like 70 quid for the article, which obviously for a 15-year-old kid or a 16-year-old kid was a huge amount of money. I remember thinking I could go out and buy, you know, doing the calculations on my fingers and thinking I could probably go and buy, you know, eight albums or nine albums with the money. So, um, so it seemed like a good gig to be able to write about something that you loved and get paid for. It seemed amazing. And, um, and so obviously I got the taste for it and then I was trying to think of ways in which I could uh, suggest more features to sounds and then all of a sudden this was just at the time when they suddenly announced that Kerrang! was going to be launching. So I guess this is late 81, something like that. Um, and of course when that came out I 
picked that copy up at my local WA Smiths and thought, wow, this is this is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, that iconic first issue with Angus on the cover. Um, and thought to myself, well, clearly that's where I'd like to be writing if I could uh, manage to achieve it. So what happened was I was kind of trying to black my way to write some more stuff. Uh, I can't remember whether I'd actually been in touch with anyone on Corinne. I think I hadn't. Maybe I was trying to talk to Alan Lewis still. Anyway, um, after about, I think, two or three issues, I got a phone call from a guy called Alf Martin. And Alf said that he was editor of Kerrang! And this seemed very odd to me because as far as I could see, the editor was a guy called Jeff Barton, who obviously I knew from Sounds because Jeff was the big metal writer on Sounds, as I'm sure you know. And and so I kind of thought, oh, this is odd. But anyway, he said to me, look, I'm editing Kerrang! And I know that you had a piece on... um, the, on European metal um, featured in sounds and I know you've got a fanzine and I said yeah that's right and he said well you know have you interviewed anybody recently and I said yeah I have actually I've interviewed um, there was a band called A to Z who was from Manchester they were on Polydor and um, I think I'd said I'd interviewed uh, maybe the Scorpions or something like that because there was a really good guy at EMI who was very kind and set us up with an interview with the Scorpions even though I was just writing a fanzine for 500 people and Alf Martin said oh yeah well I think I can take these and I said okay so he's told me how many words he wanted and all the rest of it and I put the phone down and thought well it can't be that easy surely somebody just phones you up from Kerrang magazine and says what articles have you got I'll take them all <laughs> um, but um, but that's what happened and I duly did the articles and sent them into Alf at Kerrang and then he phoned me uh, and said look, you know, I'd like to talk to you about Kerrang. Could you come and see me in the office? And, of course, the office at the time was down in London. It was actually above Covent Garden Tube Station. So um, I was up in Manchester, still at school. Um, I thought this was a fantastic opportunity. So uh, I said yes, of course, and got on a coach at the time. It was too expensive to get the train, so I got a coach and went down to London on the coach and went to meet Alf in, uh, in the Kerrang office. And Alf was there. He was a um, an avuncular, grey-haired guy, probably probably not as old as I imagined he was at the time. He probably would have been maybe fifty or something like that. Um, anyway, I went into the office and um, had a chat with him, and he said, "Look, you know, um, we like what you do. Um, would you be interested in contributing some more?" Of course, I bit his hand off for that, and then. Um, before I knew it, I was off um, on the road with Sammy Hagar on the Standing Hampton tour. <laughs> so I, I went down to St. Austell, which is about right down the other end of the country, and ended up on the road with Hagar for three days. And that was kind of how it all started. But the really interesting part of the story is the fact that once I'd kind of, you know, managed to get my feet under the table and was um, was getting a lot of commissions out of Kerrang!, Dante Benuto was on board and uh, Steve Gett was on board and... I found out, I can't remember exactly how I found out, but I found out in the end that the reason that Alf was editing Kerrang! and not Jeff Barton was that there had been um, a journalist strike. And, of course, at the time, everybody was a member of the National Union of Journalists, the NUJ. But obviously, I was very green. I went behind the ears, didn't even know what a union was. And um, they'd all gone out on strike over something or other. And Alf had been a strike breaker. 
And obviously he had a magazine to fill and had no writers because obviously everyone who was in the NUJ was out on strike. So um, so he obviously needed as much content as he could get his hands on. So I was just very, very lucky being in the right place at the right time. And obviously because I was so naive, I had no idea what was going on. So I didn't realise there was a strike going or that I was a strike buster. And of course, once it all kind of settled down and everybody ended up back at work, nobody held it against me because they knew that I was, you know, I didn't have the first clue about it. And uh, and everything went on from there. So it was a, it was a really, really lucky break. Yeah, so Howard, tell me how old you were when you went on the road with Hagar. Uh, I would have been 17, maybe 16, but I think I'm just about 17. How did your parents react when you said, I'm going on the road with Sammy Hagar for three days? <laughs> well, the, the funny thing was, my dad actually was brilliant. He was really supportive of the whole thing because when I was making the fanzine, he was the one who did all the driving around to, to take the pages, which obviously you had to lay out on boards. So, um, you know, you'd type the articles, then you'd cut, and, cut them out and paste them onto boards. It was really a Roman way of doing things. And then you'd have to take the boards off to a printer. And we, the cheapest printer we could find was like an alternative press. I presume they were producing a lot of political literature, really, but they obviously were also available for people to um, print, you know, little magazines and what have you. And so that was in Rochdale, which was like, 40 miles away from where I lived uh, and my dad used to drive me around and pick the mag up and bring it all back and I'd sit there and staple it all together and all the rest of it so he was very supportive but obviously it was a very different thing to suddenly go oh actually you know I'm going to go out on the road um, with an American rock and roll band but I seem to remember that he was pretty cool about it um, and thought it was an opportunity and thought it was something I loved doing and um, I think my mum was probably having kittens and he was trying to pacify her behind my back because i don't really remember it being a big issue in the house and i kind of duly trundled off and did it what was sammy's reaction when you walked up to him and said you were doing the interview as a 16 year old kid well you, you know the weird thing is it's that because this is happening to you when you're 16 and you're very naive and you don't really see things as you see them as you get older. Of course, now that I'm in my fifties, I look back on that and think, "Gosh, you know, that was a that was a really weird scenario for to be in and to be that young, and turning up with the pretense of writing knowledgeably about guys who are obviously much older than you and have you know a long history of you know being recording artists and making music and what have you." So, you know, whether those guys were thinking, "Who is this little prick?" I don't know, but. Um, you know, I I went in there feeling that I was competent and knowledgeable and capable of doing the job. Um, I didn't particularly have any sense that I was being kind of looked down on or treated as a kid. Um, I travelled on the bus with them on that tour, I remember, actually, on the bus with Sammy and his wife at the time, which kind of, you know, you look back on it now, the world's changed so much in that, you know, the access that you had at that time to the artists was just absolutely unbelievable. Nowadays, you know, you're lucky if you get 20 minutes on Skype, but um, back then, there, was, there wasn't that same understanding of, you know, the need to control an image and control who was going to get access. And you just kind of got invited along. And if you were a decent, you know, if you didn't piss them off too much, then you were kind of taken on board as part of the furniture. And my, my recollections of that, from 82 that it was all fairly cool and if they did have any kind of sneeriness about my age well they didn't show it to me because i suppose they weren't a good writer yeah now you didn't have any real experience of being on the road with anybody so you know the saying what goes on tour stays on tour 
How did you yeah. know what to put in the article and, and what to leave out? Well, it was with his wife, first and foremost. So there wasn't a lot of going on tour, staying on tour kind of behaviour from Sammy, as far as I can remember. Um, in terms of... I suspect probably what happened was that they would have looked at me and thought, hold on, this kid's only 16 or 17 or whatever I was. Anything to do with sex, drugs and rock and roll would have probably been a bit hidden. So... Um, I don't particularly remember from that trip it being particularly wild and crazy. Um, I think my next road jaunt was with Blackfoot, and that was a whole different kettle of fish. They weren't worried about what I saw. But um, I think you just have a you have a sense of it as well when you're a writer. Is that There are certain things that you go, okay, it's fair game. It's there to be reported. These guys seem completely comfortable with it. And there are certain things that you realise that, you know, maybe they weren't so comfortable with that being in the public domain. I think we're all like that. We've all got stuff that we think, you know, we've done or said or whatever that you'd think I'd rather that stay private. And I've, I've probably had a fairly good intuitive understanding of, of what should be in magazines and what shouldn't be in magazines. And I think that that's probably why... I got to do a lot of road work as well because, you know, I always wrote what I thought, but there were certain things you go, that's that's just their private business. It's not really, it's not really part of what I'm there for. Yeah. Did did you have someone in in the magazine that was kind of a, a mentor to you early on that kind of guided you a lot? I don't know actually because I never, funny enough, in all the time I worked at Kerrang, I was never on the staff. I was always a freelancer for various reasons, um, and so. It wasn't as if I was in there every day. The longest, the longest period I was ever in the Kerrang office was actually right at the start when just after, um, just after I got that break, I was between school and university, and I ended up going down to London for three months to um, to work in the Kerrang office for that period of time because Alf basically said to me, "Look, you know." we could do with some extra help down here. How do you fancy it? So I, I managed to kind of get myself a bit of a student digs in a basement flank. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because it's in Kensington, which sounds very posh, but it wasn't. And I went and did three months in the office there. And that's kind of when I got to know people. And I suppose if there was anyone who was a mentor, it's probably not quite the right word, but Dan Tavernuto was probably the person I was closest to there. Do you know, I don't even know what Dante's history was and how he ended up at Kerrang. But he was always there with his enormous um, mop of curly hair and his big thick glasses and his very laconic way of looking at things. And he was always very nice to me and um, helpful. Uh, and again, didn't make me feel that I was kind of the junior partner. Um, and I got along very well with him. So I guess if you were to talk about mentoring, probably Dante to a certain degree. But in terms of writing, I never felt that I was... Probably stupidly, I, I never felt I asked anyone for help. I was just doing what I did, and when I look back on it now, you know that that has positives and negatives. In so much as the positive is that it was very raw and emotional and came from a very pure place. I loved the music and I loved it, you know, to distraction. And the negative, of course, is that it wasn't particularly well honed. There, there are things that I. You know, when I look back on the articles that I wrote now, I think, gosh, you know, that's clearly the writing of a of a 17-year-old kid. But then again, that's what I was, and I think that in some ways that's what Kerrang! readers related to because it wasn't corporate, it wasn't well thought through, it wasn't marketing speak, it was just a bunch of guys who loved rock music and were just kind of splurging about it. Yeah. Now, your first, your first road story you said was Sammy Hagar. Um, yeah. Were you surprised you got a, a, a such a high profile 
first feature because like you think they'd send you up to the, the arse end of nowhere to review this shitty indie band or something to see whether you could actually do the job yeah i, th- I think it was back to that thing about alf and needing content because i think when i if i remember rightly when i went on that road and did that road piece with hagar i'm pretty sure that the strike must have still been on so i think again it was just circumstances that meant they needed someone to go and do it and now i presume i went and did it and then delivered the copy, and they must have been happy with it. Funnily enough, I, I actually had a reread of that very article that I wrote for Kerrang! the other day, because in my current guise as the editor of Rock Candy Mag, we have a newsletter where we kind of do links to some of the old Kerrang! articles from the guys who are now working on Rock Candy, because it's just entertaining to be able to go back and look at those things. So I kind of did a link to that Hagar story. It wasn't too bad, actually. I was, I was reasonably pleased with, um, with what we'd done, and um, I guess... They must have been as well because, you know, as I say, pretty quickly I was, you know, getting some decent commissions. Yeah, so how soon after the Hagar piece did the strike end? And did you actually get the shitty jobs then after that for a while? No, not really. I th- I, it, it can't have been very long before the strike came to an end because by the time I was in London that summer, which would have been the summer of, yeah, let me think, 82 probably. Yeah, I think it would have been the summer of 82. Um, the strike was over, Dante was there I think, as far as I remember it Dante was pretty much running the ship by then I don't know what happened to Jeff and no, they seemed to accept me perfectly well and you know, I got my fair share of well, you say shitty gigs but to be honest, at that time I was just so excited about doing it that, you know, going to see a band at whatever the underworld was called at that time or, you know, any, any little gig in London or in a pub was just a laugh it was just good fun to be doing it you know you get in for free you get to see a band even if they happen to be a bad band you know there'd probably be someone there to buy you a drink or two that you've got you know i had already a little coterie of friends because um i'm trying to work out what happened actually because i went down and did that summer and then i went back again at some point to do another stint there and ended up living in um in Belsize park in the north of london and that was Janice Isit, who, I mean, I don't know if you were a Kerrang! reader in those days, but Janice used to be the secretary. But you know how Kerrang! was, we used to always talk about stuff that we were up to. And Janice was this petite, blonde, blue-eyed little rock chick. And obviously, I think there was probably quite a few of us in the office who were secretly in love with Janice. Um, but she helped me out and got me... Um, uh, basically a place on the floor in in, um, in a flat in Belsize Park with a friend of hers who's called John Osmond. And John, although he won't be known to any fans of Kerrang! or probably rock fans, he was a bit of a player at that time. He was a vocalist in various bands. And he knew a lot of the guys who would kind of eventually go on to do bits and pieces. So like Dave Colwell um, and Andy Barnett, who were in you know FM and played with Adrian Smith in ASAP and stuff like that, and John was big mates with those guys. So Andy and Bucket, Dave was always known as Bucket uh, for some reason. They always used to be around the flat, and so I got a kind of a little um, coterie of musician mates, and also there was a pub up the road from. Uh, where I was staying in Belsize Park called the Sir Richard Steels. And it was a well-known hangout for rather loose rock stars. I think right going back to the early 70s, because if I remember rightly, I seem to remember 
somebody telling me that like guys like Andy Fraser out of Free and um, John Waite out of the Babies used to knock about there and they always used to drink in the Richard Steels and there was an upright piano in there and apparently they used to all get on there and start plonking around the piano when you know when they'd had a few uh, so um, so I was lucky in that when I was there I had a kind of you know a ready-made bunch of mates and so going to gigs you'd usually be tagging along with someone else or you'd made some friends because people generally like Kerrang so um, I don't really have any recollection of it being you know being sent anything miserable to do or having to go anywhere and thinking what the hell am I doing it yeah can you remember remember the first time you were you interviewed someone who you're a huge fan of that you, you're actually starstruck to actually talk to him <laughs> do you know do you know to be honest with you um I, it didn't affect me that way and it never has um you know i read there the were bands i was hugely passionate about i was you know when i was a kid i was a really big kiss fan um and i loved the scorpions um I kind of I'd spent an evening with Scorpions when I was doing my fanzine when they played on the ooh, what would it have been probably the Animal Magnetism tour so about 1980 something like that maybe Blackout tour can't remember but um, I, you know from doing the fanzine I'd kind of met a few bands and a few you know fairly big ones and bands that I really liked but I don't really remember feeling starstruck about it. I was I was into the music. I loved the music. And I loved the idea of being able to kind of hang around with these guys. But I don't ever remember sitting there thinking that I was somehow kind of, you know, gibbering fan. So I hope, you know, um, obviously those guys will probably know better than me, but I hope that, um, you know, I conducted myself in a reasonably professional way when I, when I spoke to them. Um, can you remember the, the first trip that they sent you abroad on? And did Dante kind of, because you were so young, did he kind of want to keep you in the UK at all? Can you remember that? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I think the thing to remember as well, Richie, is that, you know, we were all pretty young then. I was the youngest, but I think everybody was pretty young. Dante, I think, probably would have been, I don't know, maybe three or four years older than me, something like that. So, you know, we were all young guys, and I think, you, you know, you have that kind of slight arrogance or, you know, lack of awareness when you're that age. You don't really think about, you know, the problems you might face or, you know, what the dangers in life are. You're just out there doing it and enjoying it. And, and so, you know, the, I don't think it ever entered anybody's mind that, oh, you know, we shouldn't send Hojo abroad because he's a kid. Um, and I do remember the first story that I did, actually. The first story I did was... I don't know if you remember them, a Spanish band called Barón Rojo. Remember them? No. They were a um, good band, actually. And I can't remember how I first... Ah, I suspect I know what happened. I suspect that I'd written something in that sounds piece and mentioned this band that I'd found out somehow about. And then by the time I'd got up and running a little bit with Kerrang, they were recording an album at Kingsway Records in... Um, in London, which is the studio that um, Ian Gillen owned. And somehow somebody must have got hold of me, and I might have still owned maybe doing the fanzine and a bit of Kerrang writing at the time. I think, I think the two things overlapped for a while. And, um, and I ended up, I remember going down to London to interview Baron Rochel when they were in the studio recording what would be their second album. And then I think when that album was ready, and I was then doing a bit more stuff for Kerrang. I think they, I seem to remember they phoned me 
and um, and asked me if I'd like to go out and see a gig in Madrid. So obviously I was excited and thinking this would be amazing if I could get out, you know, fancy someone paying to me to go and watch a band abroad, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and um, I think I probably went and asked Dante if it'd be okay if they'd take the piece, you know, and obviously it was a bit of a blag. And, um, and he said, fortunately, he said yes. So I ended up in Madrid um, seeing this Spanish metal band. Nice. So did you ever um, did you ever go to any of the Monsters of Rock shows in Donington for a Kerrang? Oh, yeah, I went to a few. Um, the first one I went to, funnily enough, I, I found a photograph, actually, from the very first one that I went to, which I think was 1981. I, didn't, I missed the first one because I was abroad. And then 81, I, I ended up going. And again, I think that I was probably, yeah, because it would have been the summer of 81. So I wouldn't have even been writing for Kerrang! at that stage because Kerrang! hadn't launched. Um, and I, I managed to get a ticket or a pass just from doing the fanzine, which is kind of amazing now, isn't it? That you think yeah. that they would just be hand passes like willy nilly. So anyway, I got a pass for it, and, there's a, and, and you know, there's a photograph of me looking very geeky and sort of trying to grow my hair out from schoolboy length to rock length um, with Angry Anderson from Rose to Two, who was there. I don't, I don't even think they were playing that day, as far as I remember. Um, maybe he was there with something to do with ACDC because they were, they were headlining. So there's a photograph of me there and I've got a, a really brilliant homemade satin tour jacket on with a trust patch that I got my mum to sew on. <laughs> <laughs> and a little badge of my fanzine, a little Phoenix badge for the fanzine. Obviously thinking I was very cool and clearly looking like a geek. <laughs> but it was fun to see that picture and, uh, and kind of think, yeah, that was, that was my first Donington. So I, I went to that one and then... Gosh, I probably I probably went to most of them up until I don't know maybe maybe the end of the eighties or even into the nineties actually. Um, I remember seeing Skid Row on one of the bills, which was probably I don't know ninety one or ninety two or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a ritual at that time to go up to um, Donington. Um, I remember there was a funny year where they had a girl who was doing some work experience at Kerrang. Jeff was up there. And I think this girl had gone up there and probably had a few too many shandies. And um, as far as I can remember, I'm not sure that I saw anything, but the word came back that she'd got to over-friendly with some American rock bands. And I remember that the word had come back that Jeff had gone completely ballistic and told this girl, don't bother coming to work on Monday morning. So I think that was the end of her writing career. <laughs> yeah, were you at the, uh, the Dyington in 88 when the, the two kids got killed during the Guns N' Roses set? No. I wasn't there. That was the one that made and headlined. Um, and for some reason, I wasn't there that year. So um, don't know why. Can't remember. But yeah. no, I definitely wasn't there. Yet. Okay, so I'm gonna. This is going to be a two-part question. Um, your most memorable road stories uh, for the right reasons is the first part. <laughs> well, <laughs> memorable road stories. Um, I'm just trying to think of the kind of things that happen on the road. The road's a funny place, you know, funny thing, actually, because it's kind of halfway between absolute madness and absolute boredom. You have, you know, during the day where basically people are just falling asleep on a coach and then the nighttime where everyone goes crazy. I guess my most memorable stories, well, 
there were some horrible ones that are probably yeah, not worth that, that, No, that was the second part for the right reasons and uh, the wrong ones. So go ahead. Okay, so, well, okay. My, my most memorable time on the road, um, hmm. just purely because I was a real fan at the time, I really, really enjoyed being on the road with the Colts at the Sunny Electric Tour. Um, they started in the UK, I think, and that was just after they'd got back and they, you know, I got quite matey with the cult because I was a real fan. I loved the band. And um, I'd been at, um, in residential studios with them when they were, oh, just when She Sells Sanctuary was really taking off and they, they'd lost Nigel Preston um, because he had big drug problems, as you know, and he went on, unfortunately, uh, was dead within about three years, I think. Um, but they were auditioning drummers uh, just as Sanctuary was going ballistic. Um, and I went down to the residential studio somewhere in Surrey, I think, where we were recording, and got to, got to know them, and then went down when they did the Steve Brown electric album and went to the studio then and kind of hung out for a couple of days and listened to those Steve Brown versions of the songs that became the ones that were on the Rubin version of Electric. So I had a bit of history with the cult. So when that album finally came out in its radically different form, after they'd scrapped everything that they did in England and went to New York and did it with Rubin, um, I ended up on the road with them for three or four days, I think. Um, and I just got on really, I, I've always liked Billy because he's a sardonic Mancunian. Um, so we have a lot in common. And we're both big Man City fans, so we um, we talked a lot about football. And it was just it was enjoyable because I was comfortable around those guys because I knew them already. It was really exciting to see them suddenly kind of you know taking off and moving into a an area where rock fans were suddenly starting to appreciate what it was that they were doing. Um, and it wasn't so they'd got to the point where it was so big that, you know, there was all security and this and that. You could get close to the guys. I, I travelled on the bus with them and just loved the shows. I just thought the shows were absolutely fantastic. You know, I, I think that around that time and then on through to Sonic Temple, the cult were just the most exciting live rock band out there. So that was that was a really fun thing to do, even though I had to go to Bradford. So you know, it's not all about they, it's not all about where the where you go for the glamour. It's about it was about the music, and I really enjoyed being on that. And then, for the wrong reasons, I did Saxon in um, in the states on the west coast. Uh, <laughs> what was the album? Can't remember. It was around about uh, it might have been Crusader and. Um, I hooked up with them in LA. I think I flew to LA and they were coming in and then there was a couple of gigs. I think there was a gig in San Diego uh, and then a gig in LA. And I think I saw two shows and I think it was at the San Diego gig where, you know, I, I pitched up, um, was it San Diego? I can't remember. It might, might have been in LA. I pitched up and we'd seen a gig and then um, we got on the bus and the various members of the band brought some, you know, American girls onto the bus with them and then off back to the hotel. And I remember sitting in the bus looking around and looking at Saxon, who, you know, God bless them, weren't exactly um, Van Halen in the looks department, were they? And um, every one of them had some very attractive looking American girl with them. And I had absolutely no one and think to myself, something's gone terribly wrong here. <laughs> I'm feeling very disconsolate going up to my room on my own. 
And then the next night was in San Diego, and we went up there, and Heavy Petting were um, opening for Saxon on this. And there was a lot of shenanigans going on prior to the gig with girls and, frankly, shagging and all the rest of it. And I just thought, now nah, this was a bit kind of, I don't know, felt a bit animalistic to me. It wasn't very nice. Um, and that was a bit where I kind of went, mm, you know, you, you can be a rock, you can be a rock and roll band, but you don't actually pig, do you? So uh, that's probably one of the least edifying things that I ever did. <laughs> yeah, did you ever, ever go on the road with any, like, were you a thrash metal fan? Did you ever go on the road with, like, Metallica or Anthrax or Megadeth or any of these guys? Yeah, funny enough, I, I, I wasn't a big thrash fan uh, when it first came out. So Kill 'em All came out, and I went, mm, yeah, whatever. Um, much to my regret but um i remember i was uh reviewing the singles for kerrang when um when ride uh, ride the lightning was just about to come out i think was it ride the lightning uh, what's creeping death on that's ride the lightning isn't it yeah yeah okay so creeping death was um was one of the singles that was in the bunch of singles and uh, I remember it was on Music for Nations, and it was a 12-inch single, and I was thinking, oh, you know, thrash metal, not really my bag. And then I put the record on in the office, and it was just undeniable. It was absolutely, undeniably brilliant. It was a fantastic piece of music, incredibly intense, but, you know, full of melody and invention and attitude. It was, it was you know, it just totally knock me sideways and i remember thinking ah okay i need to start reappraising this you know emerging music um because i was very well fan as well you know in the early days of Kerrang, I, I did a lot of the you know a lot of the american stuff um so it was a real it was a real 360 but it was like i say that, that music was just undeniably brilliant and um and so i got in i got to know the uh, the metallica boys a little bit because I think, if I remember rightly, they were in England a lot because they were obviously tight with Music Nations. And I don't know, they were on, whoever they were on in America, it was Johnny Z and his lot, I think, still at that time. Um, and so they seemed to be in London a lot. And when they were in London, almost inevitably, Lars would be at the Kerrang office because he was an operator. Lars knew how to build his contacts and get in with the right people and, you know, and hype his band and there's nothing wrong with that. There was, you know, there was good, intelligent marketing from Lars, even though, you know, we probably didn't see it that way at the time. So I got to know those guys a little bit. And I remember being up in Copenhagen to do a story with King Diamond, who I wasn't a fan of particularly. But um, there was a certain amount at that time as well. You know, if you think about it, I was probably 17, you know, 18 or 19 or something, and I was at university, so I was kind of, you know, student, really. Um, so if you got offered a chance to earn some money by doing your writing for Koran, then you were going to take it. So anyway, I, you know, I was up there doing King Diamond, who turned out to be a really nice chap, actually. Um, and it was funny because obviously he had all that kind of, you know, devil worshipy, face painty malarkey um but i stayed in his flat in copenhagen and he was uh, he was a real nice fella and um and we'd had a few drinks and it was late at night and i said to him look you know all this devil worship stuff it's it's all bollocks isn't it and he said 
Well, yeah, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> I think you're probably, you're probably you're probably the first person I've told. And I think it, you know the statute of limitations has probably run out on that one now, and I'm allowed to say it. But I digress. While I was in Copenhagen, uh, Metallica were in the studio with Fleming Rasmussen recording Master of Puppets, and so because I knew them a little bit from back in London. I must have had a number or I phoned the studio or somebody told them that I was there. But anyway, what, however it transpired, I, I ended up going up to the studio when they were um, recording Master of Puppets and they were all there. And obviously Cliff was still alive at the time. And, um, and I went up and we had some, we had some drinks and played pool and what have you and just kind of hung out. And I remember I was, I just, I was telling you before I was, I was in the height of cult mania because, um, I think love was, you know, it would have been love that was out at the time. And I had an advanced tape of, um, of the album and it had that song, the Phoenix on it, which is like a kind of sixties throwback where Billy's playing a lot of wah wah at the start of it. I don't know if you know the track. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I remember thinking it was absolutely fantastic track. And, you know, in my, you know how you are when you get excited about, music you want to tell other people about it and share it and so i went there with this tape and i was saying to the guys you really got to listen to this this is really exciting stuff and so uh, we put the tape on in uh, you know the kind of the pool room or the chill chill out room and we cranked the speakers up and um cliff was there smoking a joint and um the song comes up and it's, you know, that wah-wah thing starts up at the, at the beginning of it really loud. And I was thinking, wow, this sounds incredible. And uh, and kind of Cliff was just grooving along to it with his eyes closed. And then when he heard it, he was, his, his comment was styling echo because it had a big echo effect on it right, right there through. So he went, hey, styling echo. And that was his uh, kind of thumbs up for, um, for the cult. So that was my big memory of knocking about with them. So... Um, yeah, they were, you know, I enjoyed their company at that time. They were kind of, you know, very fanboyish like I was, I guess, really excited about music. But I actually ended up getting to know Anthrax a lot better. Um, I became properly matey with Anthrax for a while. I interviewed them out in uh, in New York when before, I think Fistful of Metal had come out on, what was that label um, that Johnny Z had? I can't remember what it's called. Me- Megaforce. Yeah, Megaforce, there you go. Um, it had come out, so Fistful of Metal had come out, and I remember, I, I think I was there to do something else, and, and Kerrang had asked me if I'd talk to this new band called Anthrax, and I remembered that I'd seen the cover, and it had like a fist coming out of a, a face or something, and blood everywhere. It was a really like amateurish cover, and I just remember thinking, this is pathetic, I'm going to hate these people. Uh, and on the plane over, I had a cassette of, there was like a, six track ep i think or something which was the first thing that joey did with them and again i can't remember what it's called um but um armed and dangerous isn't it there you go that's it you see your your memory is much better than mine my, my memory is shot, <laughs> but i remember thinking oh well you know i've got i've got to interview these guys i'll listen to the tape um i'm not expecting anything and of course as soon as that started there was another kind of eureka moment because all of a sudden I'm going, okay, they've got a guy who can really sing. There's a lot of melody in this. There's a lot of intensity, a lot of energy. But, you know, it was real songs. And I, I just remember listening to that tape on, like, on, on repeat all the way over the Atlantic. And by the time I got to New York, I was really excited about meeting Anthrax, actually, thinking, wow, you know, this is kind of really exciting future of music type stuff. So I got to know him through that. 
and um, and did quite a few things with them over the years. I went to Japan with them. Uh, I was on uh, I the Bahamas when they were desperately trying to finish up Among the Living with Eddie Kramer, and they were running out of time. So it was a bit of a weird stay because they really didn't have a lot of time to hang out because uh, they were desperately trying to finish the album. Yeah, you know, I still talk to Scott every so often. And I really like Anthrax. They're real good guys, real kind of down-to-earth, decent fellas. Yeah, did you ever do... Um... Did you ever do an interview or a review and you kind of put the boot in and the band kind of came after you or the record label came after you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was the famous Lars Rocket incident. This is, this is a good one. There was a band called Lars Rocket from America somewhere or other. I reviewed an album. I obviously really hated it and said so. And um, they played at one of those, was it called Hell on Earth? There was a festival in Leeds that took place around about I don't know, 83 or something like that. I think it was called Hell on Earth or something similar. And, um, and it just so happened Lars Rocket were on the bill. Now, I didn't, um, I wasn't there and I didn't review the show. But um, to their great credit, when they came on stage, it must have only been like a couple of weeks after the review came out, I can only assume. But when they all came on stage, there were four or five of them, um, they all had T-shirts on that had been printed up, especially for the occasion. It said, Howard Johnson sucks dick. Which I thought was frankly to say hats off to them. I thought it was quite amusing that they they got so riled by my review that they felt the need to retort. And I thought, well, you know, fair enough. Fair, if they want, if they want to have their say back, if I'm allowed to stick the boot in, then so are they. And I thought it was quite amusing. Yeah. So, what was the weirdest interview you ever did, or, or the most boring? Was there any that stand out to you? I interviewed um, Earl Slick once. When he was in, uh, it was John Waits band, I think. I knew John quite well because uh, I love the babies, and John's another northerner like me, um, but he's far more mental than I am. Um, and Earl Slick was in his touring band when um, Missing You went to number one in America, and I saw them opening for I think it was Missing Persons in LA. Um, which is kind of weird, you know, how it works in America sometimes. You know, you might have the biggest record in the country. And that was in the days when records were, you know, you were selling shitloads of And so it would have been a huge thing. But he was still opening for Missing Persons at that time. So um, I interviewed Earl Slick. I think they, Kerrang! was starting to do, like, spin-offs and one, one-offs and all sorts of things. Like Guitar Hero came out for a while, didn't it? I think they had, like, half a dozen of those. I think I interviewed Earl Slick for Guitar Heroes, and it was at a, a, a studio in downtown Hollywood, somewhere or other. Not like a recording studio, a photographic studio. And he turned up for the pictures, and I just knew from the minute he walked in that he was just pissed off about whatever he was pissed off about and didn't want to be there, and clearly had no interest in talking to me. And, you know, I think I started to take player rolling, and um, I started doing the interview and got, you know, some very kind of perfunctory answers. And, you know, he was just looking down his nose at me. He was sneering and just wasn't interested. And I think it, I just very quickly decided there was very little point in doing this and kind of did 15 minutes and went, well, I can probably cobble something together out of this. And said, OK, we're done, thanks. And then he just went and I think it was it probably you know, 40 minutes from him walking in the door to him walking out the door. But, um, you know, he was a, I, I guess, 
people can have an off day, can't they? But it was a bit of a prick, that day. Yeah, here, here's an interesting one, Howard. When I talked to Stefan Shirazi, the first name he said was Errol Slick. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. He said he was looking at him and he, he, going through his mind was, you are talking bollocks. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Earl just has a thing about journalists. I kind of, you know, as you get older as well, you develop a very thick skin about that kind of thing. It's very different when, you, when you're young. On those Koran days, you kind of wanted to be mates with people. Not to the point where you were going to, you know, sugarcoat anything if you really didn't like something. But if you like something, you kind of wanted to be mates with the people who made the music. And in many ways, that's what, you know, that was good about Kerrang. It was kind of a glorified fanzine in many ways. Um, and getting to know those guys as friends meant that you had a certain way of writing about them that was different to how, a, you know, a professional music journalist, for want of a better term, would, would talk to them. But, um, you know, as you get older, things change. You look at things in a different way. I'm, you know, I'm not really nowadays editing and writing you know writing about rock music still after all this time um you know i'm not really there to be their mate i'm there to understand what they're about and what makes them tick and hopefully give people an insight into what their life's like and try and write in a way that is illuminating um and detailed and accurate and emotionally moving whereas you know, back then it was, well, hey, I'm on the road with my mates, let's get pissed. You know, and both both of those things are kind of valid. They're just different. Yeah. Can, can you remember where, what, where the weirdest setting was to, that you ever did an interview in? And I'll give you an example. Xavier Russell said he interviewed Celtic Frost, and they brought him into this black room with skulls and candles in it, and he said it was the weirdest setting he'd ever had. Can you, did anything stand out for you in any interview you ever did? Well, there are some funny things that happened, but... I mean, I suppose one of the weird ones was that the, I'm, I'm going to be spoiling the, the story a little bit um, because there's going to be something about it in the next Rock Candy Mag. So I won't give it all away, but I'll give you a flavour. I did get asked to go and do a Koran cover story on Sabbath when Headless Cross came out in 89. And the idea was that I was going to go down to Battle Abbey in Hastings where they were shooting the video. And I got there, and the idea was that we were going to do the interview at uh, midnight in the Abbey itself. So obviously all spooky and typically Sabbath. So I got there in the afternoon, and obviously it's not very spooky, and it's not very doomy, and it's not very Sabbathy because obviously you've just got a load of people with clipboards running around sorting out a video. And um, to my great shame and my eternal regret i was asked if i wanted to be a monk in the video and for some unfathomable reason told them no i thought i was probably probably thinking i was too cool to be a monk in a video which is frankly the least cool thing you could have done because who who wouldn't want to now be sitting here 25 years later going i was a monk in a black sabbath video so um so anyway the idea was that we were going to do this interview at midnight in battle abbey and of course as the day went on there was uh, Tony was there and Cozy was there, and um, you know they were just pissed off with it. It was you know a long day video shoot and all the rest of it. And in the end, we said, oh yeah, we're supposed to do this interview at you know midnight in the Abbey, but you know in his broad Birmingham accent, he said, would you would you would you be all right if we just went back to uh, back to the hotel and got a couple of points? <laughs> so so from being in a place where it was going to be very weird and bizarre. We ended up doing it over over a few pints of bitter in a in a hotel, <laughs> so it was kind of 
you know, it, it was the it was the weird the weird environment that never happened. Yeah. So so who was the the nicest guy you ever interviewed? Like a lot of people might say Ronnie James Dio be a name that had come up, or maybe Ozzy. Was there anyone that stands out to you that was was incredibly friendly to you? Well, there are some people who I'm still mates with. Billy Duffy's one, and it's very funny. It's really weird. If I sounded distracted while I was giving you that last story, it was because an email just came in from William Duffy. So there you go. That's serendipity for you, isn't it? So I, I got on very well with Billy. I liked, I liked his down-home Mancunian attitude. I liked the fact that he could take the piss out of himself. I liked the fact that um, he was a brilliant guitarist, in my opinion, in terms of you know his kind of emotional range. And I, I, you know, I always had a good time when I was on the road with, with him. So Billy would be one. Um, I really like Scott. Scott's another really kind of down-to-earth guy. Always been somebody who I've always been in touch with. But probably one of my favourite people uh, and, and a proper mate rather than kind of, you know, I, I know musicians and, like, you know, I'm friendly with them, but a real proper mate is probably Ricky Warwick. Because I've known Ricky, oh gosh, twenty five years now, and I just always, I just from the minute I first met him, I just got along with him when he was in the Almighty, and when they were recording Just Add Life, um, I went down with my soon-to-be wife. One of the, I'm a romantic man, aren't I? My, one of the first things I do when I get a new girlfriend is take them down to a recording studio. To hang around. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we went down to the. Um, the recording studio, which was again, I think, Surrey Way or Sussex Way or something like that, um, and just had a brilliant night, um, getting all sort, getting up to all sorts of nonsense and enjoying ourselves, and just found Ricky a really articulate, interesting, decent guy, and you know, obviously for me, when he phoned me up and told me he got the Lizzie gig I just couldn't have been more happy I thought that was a fantastic thing to happen for a really decent guy and I was just speaking to him again a couple of nights ago um, from LA and of course Black Star Rises is going incredibly well for him and um, he's still the same guy a lot more tattoos than when I first met him but still the same guy and um, I've just always really respected his integrity and liked him as a guy so I would probably if I was going to pick out a musician that I was, I've consistently been close to. Ricky would probably be it. Yeah, I just got a couple of more questions on Kerrang before we, we talk about Rock Candy no for a few minutes. Um, no was there a band for Kerrang magazine that you championed that thought they'd be big and they never made it? That I thought would be big. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, you might think that you know you should never have thought they'd be big. But I do remember very vividly thinking that Heavy Petting were going to be absolutely massive because. Brian May did that first album. It seemed to have all the kind of since tick all the right boxes for America. It was kind of a bit leopard-like. They were young and reasonably good-looking. They had a kind of a you know pretty shiny sound while still being you know still being pretty hard-hitting. And um, I remember I reviewed that album and said I can't remember the year it came out was probably I don't know eighty yeah. 80 something, 85, 86, don't know. But um, I remember saying if they aren't massive within four years, I'll run the London Marathon naked. I remember <laughs> writing that. <laughs> and um, fortunately, nobody ever helped me to it. I think it was probably for the benefit of all the good citizens of London that they didn't. 
Yeah. Um, so wh- when did you leave Kerrang and, and stop writing for him and what made you do it? I left Kerrang in 1990. And the reason I left Kerrang was, it's a good rock and roll reason, it was because I went to work with Iron Maiden. Um, I'd worked with them for a long time. Shouldn't mention them, really, and people that I'm friendly with, because obviously I've known those guys forever. Um, and uh, always got on well with them. Uh, had been on that infamous um, 1984 trip to Poland when they went behind the Iron Curtain before all that stuff was, um, you know, obviously all, all the, the wall came down. Uh, it was really amazing story, uh, amazing time to be in uh, in an Eastern Bloc country. And um, and I got to know Rod Smallwood, the manager, as well. And Rod had always said to me, oh, I bloody like you. I think you could, you could come and bloody work for me. And he said, and I remember him saying, but you need to finish your studies first. And then when you've finished uni, come and see me. And then I finished uni, and I was, by that stage, I was messing around in bands myself. So I had a band, and, you know, we had a, a, a little deal with a small indie label, and I was touring, and various things were going on. And it just wasn't the right time. And then in 1990, um, the band split for various reasons and I was at a loose end not knowing what I was really going to do next and I'd been freelancing for Kerrang through all that time but probably you know I'd suddenly gone hold on I'm 20 it's funny isn't it you look back on it now I think I went I'm 24 years old you know and I've not got anything I've not got a house I've not got you know I've not got um, any savings I've not got anything so I'll probably need to go and kind of try and get my life started Um, which for 24 is quite funny but um, I, so at that point, I kind of went, do you know what? I really should go and speak to Rod. And I went and I got in touch with Rod and said, you know that, that thing that you always said? And he went, yeah, yeah, come down and see me. And they were in Bayswater in London, their offices. And Rod had just come back from L.A. at that point. And, um, and I went there and I had what could nominally be, nominally be called an interview. And Rod, we, I got to the office at half 12 or 1 o'clock or whatever it was, and Rod went, right, we're going over the road, we'll go have some lunch and we'll talk about what you can do, and blah, blah, blah. And um, we went there and proceeded to get heroically pissed. <laughs> and he took me back to the office. He was all excited. He's going, oh, bloody old you're going to come and bloody work for me. Fantastic. And he took me back to the office to introduce me to everybody. But I was absolutely twisted beyond all belief at this stage. And you look back on it now and think, how could you possibly do that when you're supposed to be having an interview for a job? And um, I got back and was trying to keep it together, but utterly unsuccessfully. And I remember, because the girls in the office then reminded me of it on a weekly basis, that as I was being introduced, I literally slid down a a filing cabinet and just ended up in a crumpled heap on the floor. (laughs) So so I, I, I remember getting back to Birmingham where I was living at the time and waking up the next morning with a horrible hangover and a terrible sense of dread that I'd just blown this fantastic opportunity to go and work with Iron Maiden. And, of course, it was in the days, you know, it's like faxes. There was no email. There was no mobile phone. There was nothing. And so I was on tenterhooks for about three days until the letter finally plopped through the post with the job offer. So he obviously, you know, he think, well... That's part of the bloody maiden way, isn't it? So um, I'd kind of, in a in a weird way, I'd pass the initiation test. I think. Yeah. So so let's bring it forward to now, Howard. Of course, 
you got the new Rock Candy magazine out. You, you, were you still mates with Derek Oliver um, because he runs the label? Is that how you ended up with the, doing the magazine? Yeah, because you know Derek and I go go way back. I mean, even to before Kerrang days, Derek and I used to be two spotty teenagers trying to grow our hair and swapping tapes of obscure American AOR bands. Um, so I knew Derek from even before either of us were working on Kerrang. Um, and I even went down to stay with him in London when I must have been, I don't know, 15 or something like that. And I always really liked Derek and got along famously with him. And obviously over the years, you know, we stayed in touch. He went off to America and went to work for ACO and signed, he was an a man, and signed Pantera and Dream Theatre. So he, you know, he had a lot of kudos in the music industry in New York because he had, you know, two very big selling bands. And then he came back to the UK um in the early 2000s i think and ended up um ended up starting rock candy which is you know as you know is a, a, a reissues label for all those great albums from the 70s and the 80s and i used to do sleeve notes for derek and he very he was very kind and complimentary about the stuff that i was doing for him and um and i'd always sort of badgered him about wanting to do a magazine i'd kind of got the itch again and I thought that there was a space for a different type of rock magazine that was going to be purely about the good old days, uh, an unashamedly nostalgic trip back to the you know the era when us two were running wild at Kerrang and getting knew a lot of people and had a lot of fun times, a lot of experiences. Of course, a lot of it didn't get documented because there was no other you know there was no social media, there was nothing like that. So the only thing that you ever documented was what was in kerrang itself and of course there was just hundreds of stories knocking around and i thought you know what i do as a man in my 50s is that when i get together with my rock friends you drink heavily and then you start playing records really loud sometimes bad records but always rock records and you talk about how fantastic it was and you argue about you know which van halen album is better and all that all that kind of nonsense I just thought to myself, well, if I'm doing that with my mates, there must be a lot of people out there doing the same thing on a Saturday night. And that the, the idea of the magazine kind of came out of that. And because Derek had Rock Candy, which is a fantastic name, apart from anything else, we thought Rock Candy would be a great name for a magazine. We didn't want it to just be a big old puff piece about artists that were on Rock Candy. We wanted it to be a genuine magazine with genuine attitude and genuine opinions and all the rest of it. And fun because I think I don't know about you. I found I found that the, the the rock magazines that were in the marketplace, or the rock magazine that was in the marketplace, because obviously Kerrang's owned an entirely different audience now. But you know, classic rock to me, I, I personally didn't see. I, I missed the humour. I, I used to love that about Kerrang because it was so obvious that we all adored the music, but we liked to have a laugh about it. And if something was ridiculous and hilarious, you know, we would write about it. And I felt that a lot of that fun element had just disappeared. And so that was also for me, a big motivating factor in doing, in doing rock candy. And so going, you know, there are stories here that need to be told. We need to put the passion back into rock writing and do something that really comes from the heart, you know, and that's what we decided to do because we're not a big publishing company. We don't have a lot of money behind us, um, but we have, you know, a lifetime of experience and we were there when all the good shit was happening. Um, and so we thought that that would be something that would appeal. And 
you know, it's only we've only been launched four weeks, and touch wood, it's been uh, it's been fantastic. You know, we've we've had a, a really good response, considering that, as I say, you know, it's a cottage industry. Um, we only sell online because if you go through a regular distributor, they take up to seventy percent of your cover price. So we would just be dead before we started. Um, but we've had amazing support from the rock community as you know our facebook group has got nearly 2000 people who are liking and following and discussing amongst themselves and kind of recreating that old spirit that old fun element of it you know discussing you know what's what's the stupidest you know color vinyl you've got and you know which michael schenker hairdos you like the best and you know all that kind of stuff that was all part and parcel of that world that it all got a bit po-faced, I thought, with, with what other people were doing. So hopefully we're bringing, you know, enthusiasm, passion, knowledge and fun into one lovely printed package. Yeah. Now, Howard, did you did you do the Janie Lane piece in the magazine? I did. What did you learn about Janie that, you, that like, you went, wow, I didn't know that about him at all when you were researching it? Well, that was, you know, that was a really big research piece. And again, that, that's kind of one of the things that I think is important about what we're trying to do with Rock Candy. While there's all that fun stuff and the spin stuff and, you know, the entertainment element, because we're all older and because our readers are older, you know, I think there's a, there's a need for people to want to, you know, read proper investigative stories about interesting people. And, of course, Janie was incredibly interesting guy i actually was the first person from Kerrang to interview him before dirty rotten filthy stinking rich came out and i was in la doing something or other and i got a call from Kerrang to say there's this band that's going to be putting an album out on cbs and um we want you to go and talk to them and they're called warrant and um and they turned up at i think i think they, they must have come to a record to CBS's offices or something, but it was in a kind of a very corporate office in um, in LA, and I was sitting there waiting for them. And I think they all turned up. And I remember they were all in their leather regalia. You know, they were all dressed up as if they were about to go on stage. And I thought that was kind of funny. And um, and I liked Janie. He was sparky and he was entertaining. And when I said to him, so you know you've come dressed like this, you know, would you be happy to walk down the street looking like this in your hometown? And he just looked at me and went, fuck no, you know, are you mad? I would never go out dressed like this. So I kind of warmed to him because I thought he was funny. Um, and so everything that happened to Janie, and, you know, I, I didn't stay in touch with him. I wasn't, a fr- I wasn't friendly with him or anything, you know, I, I met him that one time. But, um, you know, I always kind of followed what was going on. And, of course, his, his life was at times, you know, a tremendous car crash, wasn't it? But, um, you know, I, I always have very fond memories of him. And everybody who I researched or talked to for that piece, you know, had something good to say about him, even though one of the pieces, one of the quotes that I found was, oh, perhaps I'm not the best person to talk about Janie because, you know, I wouldn't say anything good. But anyone I got to had good things to say about him. But actually, the, probably the, the thing that I learned that I wasn't aware of that really struck me the most was the fact that he was such a brilliant all-rounder because, do you know, he was like almost um, professional-level American football player. Wow. He, yeah, he was, he was really properly um, courted by um, scouts and, you know, the college system of American football 
because he was so good. And it was one of the things that he, he fell out with his dad for a lot of, for a number of years because his dad wanted him to take a sports scholarship and he went off to do music and went off to move to Florida to be in a band. And that caused a lot of friction between him and his dad, which wasn't resolved for a number of years. So, you know, I guess that's the thing that I took away from that Jamie piece was the, the fact that he was such an all-round talented guy. Because also he was like when he was 12, he was um, playing, he was doing his own gigs like as a drummer called he, he called himself mitch dynamite and went out and did like little gigs and drumming gigs and you know he was and and people from his childhood just went he was just ridiculously gifted you know he could pick up a guitar and start playing it you know just and of course one of the weird things about warren was that he wrote all the songs i mean what other bands you know where a singer writes all the songs yeah it's, it's really rare isn't it? it's really rare you know you, you get you tend to get singers working with with guitar players but singers have actually just come, you know, come up with the songs from A to Z. That's that's rare. So I guess that's what I really learned about him was what a, you know what a talented fellow he was, and it's a, you know, obviously a great shame what what happened to him. Yeah. So so Howard, let, let's just finish it up with uh, wh- where can people buy the magazine or get in touch with you? Okay, we are only available online, and the reason for that is that we are, you know, obviously self-funded a cottage industry. We don't have a big publishing company behind us, and if you go via the traditional retail route. Um, distributors and retailers will take up to 70% of your cover price, which for us is just not sustainable. So uh, it's available online only at www.rockcandymag.com. If you go there, there is all the information you need about how to order either a single issue, which is £6.99 sterling, or a subscription, which is six issues. We're bi-monthly, six issues for the year at £5.99 per issue, so you get a little bit of a discount if you take out a subscription. And there's lots of extra content on the site as well and blogs and what have you. So uh, it's worth a visit. But obviously, that's where we really appreciate people supporting this venture. And um, you get a digital download as well. Somewhat begrudgingly, really, because we love print. And that's the reason we did it on paper. But we understand people sometimes want to read it on their phone or on their way into work or something. But um, it's www.rockcandymag.com. Um, and we've only been uh, launched for four weeks, so the first issue is still available. And um, we've had a fantastic response from the States as well. I've said about 50% of our orders are from the States already, which is really encouraging. Good. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Howard, and sharing your memories of working for Kerrang. And uh, thanks for bringing out the Rock Candy Mag. It's, I, ha- I have it. It's excellent. Good. Well, I'm glad you like it. You can ha- help us by spreading the word, Richie. We'll try. We'll do our best, OK? OK, mate. All right. We'll have a good rest of the day, Howard, and thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. All right, no problem. Okay, bye. See you, mate. Bye-bye. All right, and that is a wrap for Kerrang! Number 4 with our special guest, Howard Johnson. And again, if you want to get yourself your own copy of Rock Candy Magazine, Episode 1, oh man, Episode 1, Issue Number 1, then you can go over to rockcandymag.com. Or if you uh, do everything through Facebook, you can also, on their Facebook page, there's a box up there that says Shop Now. That'll bring you right over to rockcandymag.com as well. But again, support this great magazine. Of course, uh, you know, the classic rock magazine has uh, has kind of uh, bitten it. But uh, here we go again with another great one, Rock Candy Mag. 
whole fleet of excellent writers over there. So I urge you to check out the website. And after that, I'm sure you're going to want to check out, get your own copy of Rock Candy Magazine. Hopefully going to be around for years to come. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. I know that uh, Richie has been out and about, has been collecting some great interviews over there. He hasn't had time to drop by the studio and dump me off some audio, but uh, he has been talking to some great folks out there, and we'll be bringing all of that to you in the coming weeks. But as I said, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. Kerrang! Number four is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as usual, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, you know the word. Remember, Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.